Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We have a really great show this week. And did you know that the fourth Saturday in September is International Rabbit Day? That's right, it's just around the corner. So here's a question for you. What would your reaction be if your child came home from school one day and asked if he or she could have a pet rabbit? Well, if your child is mature enough to help care for an animal, and if your living situation would be acceptable for a new animal to join the family, then you'll need some solid information. Recently, I spoke with Dr. Anna Martin from House Rabbit Society. As you may know, there are many topics and issues surrounding rabbits besides the ins and outs of having them as companion animals, including medical and cosmetic testing on them and a rabbit overpopulation, which is where we begin now. And is there a rabbit overpopulation problem, and do rabbits end up in shelters just like cats and dogs? Sadly, there is. Um, sadly, rabbits are um, the third most surrendered animal after cats and dogs um, to our country's shelters, and you especially see that in urban areas. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, some of the individual shelters are seeing as many as 300 to 500 rabbits a year coming through their doors. Wow. Um, and, and sadly, um, with numbers like that, it's hard to find adopters fast enough. And so, sadly, rabbits are still being euthanized in our country's shelters every day. Um, because there are too many coming in um, and homes can't be found fast enough. So, Anne, where where do all the rabbits in the animal shelters come from? Yeah, this is a question we get asked a lot. Um, And I've done a lot of outreach events where I take rabbits from the local shelters out to the community, to pet stores, uh, you know, that sell supplies to showcase them for adoption. Um, And people are often shocked to learn that rabbits are in shelters and can't imagine where they could be coming from. Um, Sadly, there are still a lot of pet stores that are selling rabbits. Uh, There are a lot of pet stores. There are a lot of feed stores in more rural areas that are selling rabbits. And there are a lot of breeders that are selling directly to customers um, using Craigslist or websites, phone books, um, other uh, marketing materials, and and they're reaching out to customers directly. Um, So there are still a lot of places where people are buying baby rabbits that are unfixed um, and not getting necessarily all the information that they need to make the decision if a rabbit's really going to be right for them and right for their household um, for the lifetime of the rabbit. There's a lot of rabbit breeders, and are there also mills for rabbits like there are for puppies? Yeah, unfortunately, if people really saw the conditions that some of these rabbits were coming from that are ending up in the pet stores or the feed stores, they would be shocked, and it wouldn't be something that they would want to support. Stacked cages, um, battery cages like like you might think of um, for for chickens, um, they have the same kind of battery cages, um, sadly, for rabbits, um, for for breeding them, um, for showing, um, breeding them for meat, and breeding them for pets. Mm. And is there a problem with rabbits being given as gifts or prizes? Yeah, so in um, a number of states, it's illegal to give rabbits as prizes at carnivals. Um, In some cities, in states where it is legal, there are cities that have taken it upon themselves to pass laws on that issue. Um, 
people that are bringing rabbits home on a whim, whether it's a gift for someone or um, as a carnival prize, um, they're not really thinking about the lifetime of the rabbit. Rabbits live 8 to 12 years, which is similar to a big dog. Um, So you really want to be thinking 8 to 12 years ahead. And if you're getting a rabbit as a gift for someone else, they're not able to make that decision about committing to 8 to 12 years for an animal. I personally know um, someone who received a baby rabbit as a Valentine's Day gift, um, and we found out about this rabbit because someone was calling to schedule spay-neuter at our spay-neuter clinic that we hold here at House Rabbit Society once a month, um, and the sister ended up having the rabbit um, because her her sister, who originally got the gift, um, broke up with the boyfriend and never had wanted the rabbit in the first place. So, you know, this is a common problem when rabbits are given as gifts that the um, recipient of the gift is not necessarily um, choosing this commitment, um, and then the rabbits end up unwanted. And what does House Rabbit Society do? Yeah, so House Rabbit Society, we are a rabbit rescue and education organization. We um, have 31 chapters in the United States and five abroad, um, Italy, uh, Singapore, Canada, Australia, uh, and I'm missing one, I'm sorry, Um, but we have 31 chapters as well as our headquarters here um, in Richmond, California in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, And every day we are working with the local animal shelters and we're working with the public. Um, We rescue rabbits from the euthanasia list of local shelters and we bring them in, we get them spayed and neutered, we get them any medical care that they might need, um, and then we help to find them loving homes, um, homes where people are making a commitment to the rabbits for their lifetime. So um, every day we're doing rescue work, and every day we do education work, both individually with um, people who are thinking about adopting rabbits, as well as through our website, uh, rabbit.org, our journal, which goes out in the mail to all of our members. It's our house rabbit journal. And then um, all of our chapters, we hold events and classes um, and work with uh, local institutions like vet tech schools um, to present materials. Um, And we work with a lot of humane societies and animal shelters to help train their staff on working with rabbits. Um, So so we have this two-prong approach, both rescue and education. Right. And given the overpopulation um, of rabbits you described just earlier, you obviously promote adopting and not buying from breeders and spay and neutering, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. So there are so many wonderful rabbits that are just waiting for you at rescues and shelters. There's absolutely no reason to go to a breeder. Um, And when you adopt a rabbit from a rescue or shelter, you're saving their life. Um, And you also save the next bunny because it opens up a spot. So here, the day that a rabbit gets adopted, we can turn around and take in a rabbit that would otherwise be euthanized. Talk about rabbits as as pets. Do they make good pets? And who should or shouldn't get a rabbit? Yeah, absolutely. So rabbits are fantastic companion animals. Um, They are are pretty similar to having a cat around the house. Um, They use a litter box. Um, They, you know, it's great to have an enclosure for them, like a puppy exercise pen where they can be when you're away from the house or when you're sleeping. Um, And then when you're at home, you can let them run around just like you would, um, you know, a a cat or a dog, and they can run around the house and um, be part of the family. Um, they're herbivores, so um, their their diet is really fun. It's a big salad every day, and then they eat hay. They eat tons of hay. Um, 
either orchard grass or timothy hay, um, and then they just get a little bit of pellets every day. Um, so the leafy green salads, my bunny and I get to have the salads together, um, and but they're just really fantastic companion animals. They're um, very social. They love to be petted and love interaction with people, um, and they do love to have a, a companion, like a rabbit companion as well. And where are good places to learn more about the proper care of rabbits? Absolutely. Um, Our website, rabbit.org, has tons of information on how to take care of a rabbit um, in an indoor home setting. A lot of people might remember back to when they were a kid, they knew somebody that had a rabbit in the hutch in the backyard. Um, And our understanding of rabbits' um, behavioral needs, emotional needs, veterinary needs have come just light years from then. Um, And we have tons of fantastic materials on our website um, all about how to take care of a rabbit um, and um, do the very best for them that we can. Um, We also have our journal, which comes out um, in the mail a couple times a year that gets mailed out to our members, and it's only $20 a year to become a member, and people can do that right from our website. You mentioned rabbits like the companionship of other rabbits. Do, Do they like living with other companion animals like dogs and cats? Cats and rabbits get along just fine. We hear from a lot of people that um, rabbits will actually boss their cats around, um, which is, is kind of amusing considering rabbits are prey animals and, and cats are, are carnivores. And um, so it's always kind of amusing when we hear that the rabbit is bossy with the cat. But um, rabbits and cats get along just great. And with the dogs, rabbits can get along fabulously with um, a gentle, well-trained dog. Um, with dogs, you do want to be a little bit more careful, though, because rabbits are prey animals. Um, dogs that have a strong prey drive wouldn't be a good match to have in the same household with a rabbit for the rabbit's safety. We are listening to my chat with Ann Martin, Executive Director of House Rabbit Society, and International Rabbit Day is quickly approaching. As you heard, there's a lot more to these furry, gentle creatures than meets the eye. So stick around. More with Ann Martin on Animals Today right after the break. Do you know what declawing is? People often mistakenly believe that declawing is a simple procedure that removes a cat's nails. Sadly, this is far from the truth because declawing is actually a painful surgery in which the last bone of each toe is amputated, including skin, tendons, and nerves. If performed on a person, it would be like amputating each finger at the last joint. Besides the immediate risk of surgery, like infection and bleeding, the pain cats experience continues long after the surgery, preventing them from walking normally and leading to arthritis. Often, after declawing, cats will stop using their litter boxes, choosing carpet, beds, or piles of clothing instead. And without their claws, their first line of defense, many declawed cats will feel stressed and begin biting. Plus, if your cat happens to get outside, she'll need her claws to defend herself from other animals. Most people get their cats declawed to try to prevent unwanted scratching and damage to furniture. But scratching is a natural behavior that is important for cats. Declawed cats cannot stretch or knead normally. Why would anyone want to take that away from a cat? The bottom line is declawed cats can suffer lifelong discomfort and disability. It's not difficult to modify the scratching behaviors of a cat, such as having a few sturdy scratching posts around the house and using toys and catnip to encourage their use. Did you know that many countries have banned declawing? And many veterinarians in the U.S. refuse to perform the procedure because it is unnecessary and cruel. So those are the facts about declawing. There's just no reason to do this to your cats. 
This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. We're continuing our discussion about rabbits with Anne Martin of House Rabbit Society. I asked her where the selling of rabbits is prohibited. Yeah, so we're looking forward to the hopeful ban of um, the sale of rabbits in pet stores uh, in New York right now, but L.A. already has banned the sale of rabbits in pet stores, as well as um, San Francisco, Oakland, Alameda. So there are a number of communities in California that have already done this. Um, In the the cities where this has already gone into effect, we are seeing fewer rabbits coming into the shelter system, um, which is the goal. Um, Rabbits are wonderful companion animals, but there are so so many right now that are in rescues and shelters um, that they are still being put to sleep. And, um, you know, with these kinds of bans, we are optimistic um, that the reduction in sales um, will end up with fewer rabbits in the shelter system. And why is it important for rabbits to live inside? Rabbits are very vulnerable to predators when they're living outside. Um, We get a lot of really sad phone calls here at House Rabbit Society headquarters. Um, A lot of times it's people whose rabbits have been killed by raccoons. Um, They think that the space is secure. They think the hutch is secure. Um, Or um, we've heard sad stories about neighborhood dogs that have jumped the fence, and they were hoping that their rabbits would be able to run to a safe place in time if something ever happened and, and the rabbits weren't able to do that. Um, They're also vulnerable to hawks. Um, So predation is a really big issue with rabbits living outside. Rabbits are also very sensitive to heat and cold, um, and so they can get heat stroke in the summertime if they get too hot, um, or they can die of cold in the wintertime. Um, So living outside, they're they're very vulnerable to these things, as well as to uh, issues with uh, parasites like mosquito-borne diseases um, or fleas, um, fermites, all of these kinds of problems they're more susceptible to when they're living outside. What are the um, main... When, yeah, go ahead, I, w- I was just going to add really quickly um, that when they're indoors, um, rabbits, you also can really see their true personalities, um, and they're very social animals and want to be part of the family. So aside from just their physical needs, for their emotional health um, and their happiness, it's important for them to live inside as well. What are the main household dangers for rabbits? Absolutely. So the big one for rabbits who live inside is electrical cords. Um, So you want to cover up your electrical cords if you live with a rabbit um, or um, put cord covers on them or move them behind heavy furniture that your rabbit can't get behind um, because they can nibble on these and they can electrocute themselves and and they can also, you know, cause a fire or another um, hazard with your electrical cord. Not to mention they're expensive to replace if you've ever had to replace your laptop cord. Those are pricey. Um, So that's a big one. Um, You also want to move up 
any plants that might be down low where your bunny might nibble on them because rabbits don't do a good job of distinguishing between things that are safe for them to eat and things that are not safe for them to eat. Um, so when you're letting them hop around in your house, you want to move any house plants you have up, but that goes for the garden as well, making sure that if you have plants that are toxic to rabbits, um, that your rabbit is not going to have access to the plants. So you can look up um, those uh, plants that are toxic online as well. And you mentioned the problem of parasites for rabbits. What other common medical conditions or problems do they get? The things that we tell adopters to look for is if your rabbit ever stops eating or stops pooping, it's an emergency. Rabbits are grazing animals that are constantly nibbling on hay all day long, and their gut system is constantly moving. Um, So they're also constantly pooping. Um, And so if a rabbit ever stops eating or pooping, you offer them their very favorite treat, their favorite thing to eat. And if they don't want that favorite thing, then we recommend packing them right up and taking them to the vet. Um, It can be um, more faster and simpler um, to get them out of um, gastrointestinal stasis if you catch it early on, Um, but rabbits can actually die within 24 hours if they stop eating and stop pooping. Mm. So that's a big one. Um, The other things we tell people to look for is basically any discharge coming out of your rabbit. Um, So nasal discharge, drooling, um, something coming out of the ears, eye discharge, or diarrhea. Any of those reasons would be a good, uh, good reason to go see the vet. And do rabbits require vaccinations, and at what age should they uh, be fixed? Rabbits in the United States don't require any vaccinations. Um, For European listeners, it is a little bit different. Um, There are uh, several vaccines that are recommended in Europe, but in the United States there are no vaccines that um, rabbits need. As far as spay and neuter, um, we recommend um, as soon as the boy's testicles have descended, they are old enough for neuter. That usually occurs about 12 weeks, but it varies um, kind of case by case just a little bit. It could be 11 weeks, it could be 13 weeks, but as soon as you see testicles, um, the boys are ready for neuter. For the girls, you want to wait um, four to six months. Um, That's really the best time for rabbits to be spayed. Um, For female rabbits, critically important for them to be spayed because they're at um, high, high risk of uterine cancer if not spayed. Um, Up to 80% of rabbits will get uterine cancer um, by age six if they're not spayed. Um, So it's really important for for rabbits to be spayed for that reason. Um, The other thing that's important to know is that when you're looking for a veterinarian for your rabbit, most vets um, only see cats and dogs um, and are not specialized in rabbit medicine. Um, So you can check um, rabbit.org for the local chapter of House Rabbit Society near you. All of our chapters have um, listings of rabbit veterinarians in the area. And if you don't have a chapter that's near you, you can always call around um, to the veterinarians in your town um, and ask them who they would recommend um, for rabbits because what you'll often find is that there are one or two vets out there that specialize and everybody, all the veterinarians know who that is. Um, So if you call around, they'll all recommend you to a couple places. Um, But having a vet in advance of a problem is a great idea so you know their hours, you know um, how to get there, you have a relationship with them. It's always a great idea um, to to have that before there's a crisis. We recommend just an annual checkup every year, well bunny checkup, and then um, you'll you'll know when there's a problem, you'll have the, the perfect person with all the records that you can go to. And how widely are rabbits still used in medical testing and in testing of cosmetics? And I presume the society opposes such activities. Absolutely. Um, 
It's it's pretty heartbreaking. Rabbits are um, one of the largest um, number of animals that are that are used in animal testing in the United States, um, and rabbits are used um, not only for cosmetics testing, but also household products like cleaning products, um, as well as for medical research and um, medical test medical devices testing. Um, so there are a number of different kinds of laboratory research and testing um, that rabbits are used for. So there you have it. Almost everything you need to know if you're considering adopting one or more rabbits. To help rabbits by being a foster parent or adopting one, go to PetFinder or Anne's site, rabbit.org, or find a rabbit rescue near you. But also you can help rabbits in your everyday life by choosing the household products and cosmetics you buy carefully. Look for the leaping bunny and only buy cruelty-free items. Soaps and detergents are especially critical. And if the package does not specifically state the product was not tested on animals, you can assume it was. At shelters which have bunnies, you can become a bunny adoption counselor, learn how to trim nails, and become expert in a host of other helpful activities specific to rabbits. More with animals today after the break. Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and today's Animals Today fun facts are about octopuses. Did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago? And you can see that fossil at the Field Museum in Chicago. Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. Did you know that approximately 37 to 47% of all households in the U.S. have a dog? And 30 to 37% of households have a cat. That's 70 to 80 million dogs and 74 to 96 million cats total. Now, with all these companion animals in households and knowing the high divorce rate in the country, what happens to those animals when the family splits up, and especially if the divorce is not an amicable one? What does the law say about what happens to companion animals in divorce. To find out, I've been speaking with Philadelphia-based family law attorney, Mark Momjian, and he is here with us today. Hi, Mark. Hello, Dr. Lori. Mark, you had mentioned to me that the topic of divorce and domestic animals really should begin with the discussion about domestic violence and pets, which has really evolved in the past few decades. Tell us about that. It certainly has. Um, there is definitely a connection uh, between animal abuse, and domestic violence. Um, the Virginia Attorney General's Office has estimated that 71% of survivors of domestic abuse own pets who were also abused. This link between uh, domestic violence and animal abuse has been recognized in many states as diverse as California, Louisiana, Maine, and Iowa, all of which have statutes that specifically give protection to animals who are also victims of abuse. Wow, it's interesting the status of animals in the law has become elevated because of domestic abuse cases. 
So let's say for divorce cases where the couple is in general agreement about what to do with the dogs, cats, or other companion animals. What happens there, Mark? In the overwhelming majority of cases, people who reach a written agreement about how they're going to uh, deal with a, um, a domestic pet or a companion pet, most of the people simply abide by those terms. They don't need the court to intervene. There are, however, cases where parties reach an agreement. Most of the time it's written, but sometimes it's oral, and there's a breach of that agreement, and courts vary on whether or not they're going to hear those types of cases. Will they hear them as a breach of contract case? Will they hear them as, you know, a quasi-custody case? And depending on what jurisdiction you live in, the doors of justice will be open or closed. And unfortunately, we don't have uniformity across the country with regard to that. Okay, so talk about the situation or situations in which the divorcing couple does not agree about who gets the dogs or cats. What happens then? In those cases, um, most of the courts, unfortunately, treat pets like personal property. I know that sounds offensive. It's certainly offensive to me, and I'm, I'm sure it's offensive to you and many of your listeners. But the common law in the United States is that um, domestic pets, companion pets, are treated no different than other types of personal property. And courts, uh, when dealing with separating or divorcing parties, have to assign that property to one party or another. Um, fortunately, Dr. Lori, the law is evolving, and we're seeing more states and more legislators open to the idea of having uh, companion pets treated not like personal property, but in terms of their, um, you know, what is in their well-being, what is in their best interest. There was a bill recently introduced in the Alaskan legislature just a couple of months ago that would um, invest a court with the power to consider the well-being of an animal in the context of a separating or divorcing couple. What's the likelihood that will be passed? Right now, we don't know. But, you know, there's, there has to be a state that starts the process. And just like in marriage equality, one state, you know, passed marriage equality, eventually we're going to have a state like Alaska. If it's not Alaska, it's going to be another jurisdiction that takes the bold step of saying, these animals are not to be treated like tables and lamps. Right. They have to be treated as kinetic beings, sentient beings that deserve more um, attention than, you know, a couple fighting over pasta tongs. You know, I, I hate to be so blunt about it, but we don't think of animals uh, like tables and lamps. We think of them as part of our family. And it's hard for me as a family lawyer with over 30 years of experience to see courts very coldly deal with um, companion animals in something other than what they really are, which is sentient being. So, Mark, are judges comfortable dealing with animal cases? You know, I would say 30 years ago, most lawyers wouldn't even think about bringing an animal case before a court. But the good news, Dr. Lori, is increasingly courts are looking at these issues, and they're looking at them very, very carefully. Uh, there was a decision in Vermont in 2014, a decision in New York in 2013, where judges looked at these cases and rendered very thoughtful, deliberate opinions on how we dispose of these disputes. And the good news is they looked very much, I think, 
toward a very progressive way of dealing with the consideration of the animal's welfare, as well as the emotional connection between the animal and each of the parties. I think that's the right direction. I think that is the direction that the law is going. And, you know, I think in the next uh, five to ten years, we're going to see more decisions like the ones in Vermont and New York. Considering the well-being of the animals similar to the well-being of the children, human children? Indeed. I mean, you know, we can't really, uh, you know, when we're dividing uh, personal property, uh, we can all say, well, I have an emotional attachment to this painting or I have an emotional attachment to this piece of jewelry because it came from my uh, grandmother. Um, But when we look at animals, it's not just the emotional attachment of the parties themselves. It's also what's best for the animal. So in the New York case that I referred to that was decided in 2013, the judge had to decide what to do with this miniature dachshund uh, that was about two and a half years old. And the judge said, I'm going to consider what's best for everyone. And I thought that was a really important development in the law. Not what's just best for the parties, but what's best for the pet. You mentioned this bill in Alaska that they're considering that would take in consideration the well-being of the animals. If that passes, Mark, do you think that will set the the ball rolling for other states? I hope so. Um, It's my belief that um, animal law is very different today than it was when I went to law school some 30 years ago. It's a rapidly developing specialty. And the good news, Dr. Laurie, is that lawmakers and lawyers and judges are looking at animal law not as a purely substantive area of law, but they're looking at it as part of a course category of social justice, public interest. Um, and I noticed that a lot of your programs deal with ethically challenging issues. The reason why law students are so captivated by animal law is because it's intellectually stimulating, it's ethically challenging, and I think that once the first state passes a law that says we can consider the animal's well-being, I think that's going to be one of many cases to come, one of many jurisdictions to come. I'm very, very optimistic. So let's consider most states and its, its current laws. Does it matter if one spouse brought the animal into the marriage? Generally, it does, because um, a person's premarital property is ordinarily not subject to uh, property division. And that's regarding uh, an equitable distribution state like Pennsylvania, where I live, or a community property state uh, such as California, where you live. Um, They basically apply strict property application of the common law, which means that we're only going to divide the property that was acquired from the time of the marriage forward. So if someone brought a dog or cat into the marriage, ordinarily the uh, common law would respect that party's right to keep that dog or cat uh, because they brought it in uh, to the marriage or was owned. Again, I'm a a little offended by that word, but it was owned prior to the marriage. Very good. And how about children, Mark? Is there a tendency to place the animals where the kids are? I think so. And I think, you know, judges who exercise... Uh, best interest standards, look at that. I think most people who are mature and try to deal with divorce and separation in a mature fashion want to have um, a custody arrangement or a physical sharing arrangement that that promotes the children as well. So if the children are in an arrangement where there's an equally shared uh, custody, in other words, they spend the same amount of time with the mother as they do with the father or or the co-parents, 
Um, those types of cases often invite uh, a sharing of a dog so that the dog goes with the parent who has physical custody. I think a lot of people apply that common sense. And it's not just common sense. It's what's right for children, right? I mean, that's what makes sense. Yes. And you just for my listeners to know, you mentioned owned, and I'm very glad you mentioned that word. I know we're speaking about ownership here because it's 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 we're talking about law. But like you, we prefer to use the term guardian versus an owner. I can't tell. I can't agree with you more. I mean, I when if someone said to me, am I a dog owner? I probably say I'm not. I mean, we have a dog that's part of our family and it's an integral part of our family. I don't like the use of the word owner or ownership in connection with animals. I think most pet lovers follow your and my judgment on that, that, you know, that we think that ownership is not the right classification. Unfortunately, the law today treats these types of disputes in terms of ownership, and I think that's something that we're trying to change. I think a lot of the law schools, certainly the major law schools in California, all have animal law seminars. I think that that's a really great development. Thirty years ago, there were no such classes. I think that we're looking at that terminology and seeing how offensive it really is. Philadelphia-based family law attorney Mark Momjian, thank you. It's a pleasure, Dr. Lorian. Thank you for all your amazing advocacy. Thank you, sir. This is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. Do you remember that incredible close-up photograph of a macaque monkey that appeared a few years ago, the one showing the huge, toothy smile? This was quickly referred to as the monkey selfie, and in case you haven't been following this, the image has been the focus of a hot and important legal battle. The latest news is that the lawsuits have been settled, and the agreement is sure to have important consequences for the rights of non-human animals around the world. I want to welcome Jared Goodman, who is Director of Animal Law with the PETA Foundation. Welcome, Jared. Thanks so much for having me. Jared, how did this image that most of us are familiar with, it's quite striking, how did this image come to be? Sometime uh, before January 2011, uh, a photographer was taking some photos of crested macaques in Sulawesi, Indonesia. And at one point, he left his camera unattended and uh, a monkey who we later learned to be Naruto, came to investigate, and he intentionally picked up the camera, manipulated it with his hands, and proceeded to take a series of photographs, including the monkey selfies that you described, uh, to open the segment. And, you know, it's our position, and the experts support that Naruto clearly understood the cause and effect relationship between pressing the shutter release and the sound of the shutter opening and closing, and the change of his reflection in the camera lens. So because it was undisputed that he took this photo, Peter filed a lawsuit to have Naruto declare
declared the copyright owner of this photograph and sought to uh, manage the copyright for the benefit of the Naruto and his population in Indonesia. Now, how did PETA or anyone even become aware of this circumstance? And how did you learn how the photo was obtained? Um, it's actually the photographer himself. Uh, as the the image gained popularity, uh, he was out there talking about how it happened and essentially that it happened by accident that Nerudo manipulated the camera and just came up with these really incredible photos. And who is the photographer, by the way? His name is David Slater. Um, he's based in the UK. Okay. So I would imagine that Mr. Slater was surprised when this lawsuit was presented. Give us a little bit of the uh, proceedings. How did this go down? Sure. Um, well, Peter filed the lawsuit in federal court in San Francisco. And early last year, uh, that court ultimately dismissed the case, finding that Naruto is not the author under the Copyright Act, and therefore um, he didn't have standing to bring this lawsuit. Or to be more specific, PETA did not have standing to bring the lawsuit on Naruto's behalf because he had no right under the Copyright Act. And, uh, of course, we appealed that decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out here in California. And uh, ultimately, before that court reached a decision, uh, we reached a settlement with Slater and the other defendants in the case. And what is that settlement? Um, well, the, the, the terms of the settlement itself are confidential, um, except for uh, it requires Slater, the photographer, to give 25% of the proceeds from these, the sale of the monkey selfies to the benefit of Naruto and his community. And that's precisely what we were looking for in this case. Was Peter arguing that since Naruto had awareness or intention to take this photo, that led to a greater ownership of the rights? Um, yeah, that, that's right. Um, so the Copyright Act just applies to original works of authorship in a tangible medium of expression. Um, and then original um, is defined, has been defined by the courts to just mean anything other than a copy. And authorship author is just the, the party who creates the work, and it's left undefined by the law. And it's our position that because Naruto intentionally took the photo, he's the author of it, and he deserves to have that copyright ownership just as any other individual who intentionally took that photo. Of course, you know, we recognize that he did not realize that he was taking a photograph and that this photograph, um, you know, could then be printed and sold, um, but that's irrelevant under the Copyright it's just that he is the author, the creator of an original work. So he did not own the camera and had limited understanding of uh, the consequences of his act. So because of the settlement, there still is legal ground to cover here because the courts have not ruled whether your argument holds water. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so, I mean, the, the case sparked a massive international discussion about the need to exp extend fundamental rights like copyright ownership to animals for their own sake and not, interrelation, not in relation to how they can be exploited and used by us. Um, but you're absolutely correct that we do not have a court decision that Naruto is the owner of the copyright and therefore um, animals generally can own copyrights. Got it. So if I set up a remote camera in the forest hoping to catch a jaguar and it 
the camera is triggered by motion or infrared and I capture an image, does that Jaguar have any rights to the image under uh, PETA's logic in this suit? No, no, definitely not. Um, the, the intention of Naruto here is the, the critical part. Um, there in that case, um, not only did the tiger um, not physically take the photo, but was not aware of a camera, presumably, or, um, or had no, there was no cause and effect relationship that the tiger was aware of. Whereas here, and as we supported with um, uh, an expert amicus brief that was submitted to the court, um, it was fully intentional. Uh, we know from talking with the people who study this population that, um, that Naruto and his community regularly interact with reflective surfaces like motorbike and car mirrors um, in the, the area around where their community lives. And they also encounter people with cameras, and they've been observed by scientists looking at themselves in camera lenses and in mirrors. And as a primate, they're believed to possess self-recognition. So here we have a situation where Naruto picked up the camera intentionally, looked into the lens, saw the, his own reflection, and noticed that when he pressed the button, it would, cr it would make a sound and also the shutter would open and close. Um, and he was continuing to press the button to create that cause and effect relationship. So everything about this was an intentional act by Naruto. We're speaking with Jared Goodman, who's director of animal law with the PETA Foundation. Uh, Jared, to conclude, where does this fit into the gradual enlargement and gradual increase in the rights of non-human animals? We think that this is a, a very important step in progressing legal rights for non-human animals. And of course, animals have been protected by uh, by cruelty to animals laws and other laws like that for, for many years, but there are still legal barriers to animal legal, uh, well, animal rights that um, PETA is going to continue to fight against because these are based solely on human prejudice that denies to non-human animals the rights that we hold so dear, like just living their lives as they choose or being with their families or being free from abuse and suffering and, in this case, benefiting from their own creations. Jared Goodman, thank you so much. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Special thanks to contributing writer Katie Garrison, a super advocate for animals and an environmental protector. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.